Dr. Terry Reynolds' podcast is brought to you by New Mexico State University Bookstore and is a annual speaker series. Any unauthorized broadcast or distribution for anything other than educational purposes will be considered copyright infringement. Dr. Terry Reynolds is originally from Colorado and received her doctoral in anthropology at the University of British Columbia. Her research has included Pueblo Indians of the northern New Mexico from the late 1800s to the early 1900s, and Native Americans of Mesilla and El Paso Valleys from colonial time till present. She is currently researching Hispanic settlers and pioneers of the Mesilla Valley from the 1840s until 1912. Dr. Reynolds was a friend and colleague of local historian Mary Taylor. Today she is presenting on the Amador women of Las Cruces, New Mexico. Well, I, um, technology sort of got in our way vis-a-vis this lecture. And so I've got handouts rather than having the screen come down and doing the computer thing because we couldn't ever manage somehow to get some of the Amador pictures onto a disc. Um, I'm not sure what happened. Anyway, uh, this afternoon we made handouts. So here you have some photographs to refer to as we uh, talk about the Amadors and we talk a little bit about history in this part of the country. Um, before I start, I want to thank some people and mention some people. And I guess, Sandra, I've got to mention you first, because without your work, I probably would never have paid any attention to the Amador women. Um, I don't know if you, you, you realize that I think I follow you in a certain volume on, on women. Uh, I, I'm the one that did the Akama uh, women's article. Way back when. Okay. Same, same person. Uh, and so I must thank you. Uh, I must thank Mary Taylor, who, uh, without her being, in a sense, my mentor, I would not be able to wind my way through much of the Valley history, through much of Juarez history, through much of um, the history of the El Paso Valley. Um, Mary was one of the finest uh, local historians you ever want to meet. And as Frankie said, she probably a bit envied my PhD. Um, I think that's true. And I worked with Mary for five years uh, for the first about two years, almost daily, on uh, another invisible history. And you made the Amador women at least visible. Uh, but there's much of the history of the valley. There's much of the history of this region, both El Paso Valley and, and the Mesilla Valley, that's invisible because the people who settled here were not Billy the Kid. Uh, were not uh, some famous uh, soldier who comes in with the Civil War, etc. But they were the people who had, from the very beginning, settled New Mexico. And this was part of New Mexico, and Juarez is part of New Mexico as far as history goes, as is El Paso. And this was in many ways back in the early 80s, a real sort of black hole that n nobody knew very much about, except Mary, uh, who probably at that point knew the most. And uh, then there was a um, school teacher, an elementary school teacher by the name of Terry Corbett, who was one of Mary's friends, whom I met through Mary, and come to find out, a very fine linguist, and had been raised in Las Cruces, 
Perry had been raised in El Paso, and the two of them sort of led me by the hand for the last 25, over 25 years in learning about the invisible history of the Mesilla Valley and of the El Paso Valley. I have published very little on it for a couple of reasons. Much of the invisible history that I did was about the people who designate themselves as Indians, and they have been trying to get federal recognition, and I was waiting for them to do their thing. Um, I don't think I can wait any longer, uh, or I won't be probably be around. So uh, you're probably going to see a flourishing of both material about the Amadors and material about the Native American population that lived at the mission at uh, um, El Paso del Norte. Uh, so those two people are very, very important. I am, I do not have the skills that I should have to do the work I'm doing. I do not speak Spanish. Well, in fact, I speak it hardly at all. I do not write, read or write Spanish, except because of Mary, because of Terry. Man, 1700s, I do really well at reading. And what I do is I can read enough now with their help uh, that I can know I need somebody to translate for it. And so I have to thank Jack Cabrera, who has done a tremendous amount of translation on the Amador materials, as well as Rick Hendricks, who's also helped um, with some of the translations that we needed. I also have to thank another person, uh, two other people, and that's Estela Ramos and Marcos Guerrero. Uh, they both have been students of mine, and they decided to teach me as much as they could about their culture. And I've learned a great deal from them. Uh, there are many people who think that they know the history of this area because they're Anglo and they've read all about Billy the Kid and they know about the Teapot Dome scandal and A.B. Fall and they're quite interested in where is the fountain end up? And some people have an idea. Um, there are very few people that have looked at the Spanish history of the area and tried to understand Spanish culture as it was both in, in colonial times and in Mexican times and even into the American period. Most people don't realize that living in Las Cruces, they're living in a place that is still governed by Spanish colonial law and Spanish colonial um, traditions and so on. And so they start screaming, you know, why don't you do it this way? And why do we all go to Santa Fe to get money. Same reason that the provinces went to Mexico City to get money. You know, there, there's, this, there's this habit here. I was talking to someone last night and he said, you know, I don't know if I can, I can talk about it. I don't know if I have the words for it. They're Anglo. But, you know, it's the way you do things here. And it's different. And if you know enough about history, you realize it has these roots in colonial history here in New Spain. And we're looking at a different legal system here. I know you think you've got an American legal system, but underneath it, there is a totally different system. And one of the things in trying to understand the Amadors is to try and understand what was it like to be in the Mesilla Valley in 1847, 1848, 1849. What does that really mean when the Amadors first came here? Because they came up, they didn't come up with the original colonists 
to Doña Ana, but they came up very shortly thereafter. And what was it that they were doing, and why were they doing what they were doing? Uh, some of the questions that I've tried to ask myself and tried to understand from the perspective of these people live in New Spain, or what was then uh, Mexico. And, and what was it? How were they living? What, what kinds of things were they interested in? So all those people have helped me, but don't blame them. If you've got any problem with what I say, blame me, OK? Uh, and, and, and certainly, uh, Mary, Mary did her best. Terry has been his best. Uh, that doesn't mean that I always agreed with either one of them, and it doesn't mean that I learned my lessons very well. Uh, and certainly, I think Estella and Marcos uh, both sometimes despaired of the teacher uh, at not being able to learn. What I wanted to talk about tonight are two women. There are two women that probably, outside of Sandra, you've never heard their names. One of them is Maria Rosutio Ruiz de Amador. The other is Maria Josefa Gregorio Rodella de Amador. They have a great deal in common in the sense that one of them married the son of the other one. And so their lives revolve in a way around each other, although they are of different generations. Um, they came from different backgrounds. Refugio, Doña Refugio, background goes very deep in New Mexico. Her maternal ancestors came to New Mexico in the early 1600s, and they settled in the north in, in, in Santa Fe. And they came south at the rebellion in 1680. They came south. They, they stayed in El Paso rather than going further south, which some people did after the rebellion. They stayed in El Paso, and with the reconquest in 1692, they went north again. But like all the families who were in the north, had to come south with the rebellion, and then go back, they left somebody in El Paso so that if they had to come back again, they already had a, a, a home, so to speak relatives that they could, so to speak, bump in with if they were chased out of the north again. This family was, the last name was Garcia de Noriega. And Rosuccio's great-grandfather was from the El Paso branch of the Garcia de Noriega family. His name was Francisco. He was the military commandant of El Paso del Norte, which we now know as Juarez, but from now on, if you hear me say El Paso, I'm not talking Texas. I'm talking Juarez. Okay? And he came, he came, uh, you know, his, his, his uh, family stayed in El Paso, and he rises very quickly to the top of the social peak in El Paso. And before 1790, the lieutenant governor of Nueve Vizcaya, which is the province that El Paso was in, gives him a land grant from the king. And the land grant was called Rancho de Santa Teresa. Sound familiar? OK. And he has then a magnificent land grant. He is reported by Zebulon Pike in 1807 to have had 20,000 head of sheep 
and a thousand head of cattle on his Rancho de Santa Teresa grant. Uh, Pike, when he's brought down by the Spanish dragoons into Mexico, they stay with Francisco uh, Garcia de Noriega uh, while, while they're in Paso. Um, so you've got a very prominent history for Refugio, her great-grandfather. Her grandfather's name was Agapito Alba. And Agapito Alba is from the Spanish province of Vizcaya. He comes to uh, the, the area in um, the early 1800s. And what does he do? Marries Francisco's daughter, right? Can't do any better than that. Uh, and he very shortly becomes the Alcalde Mayor of, of El Paso, El Monte. Uh, he has a daughter who marries a guy that we haven't yet found out a lot about, but I surely intend to, whose name was Juan Ruiz. He was from Socorro. We know that. Uh, Socorro, Texas. And we know that he very quickly becomes a very prominent merchant in El Paso del Norte. Very prominent merchant. Um, he's running uh, freight trains to Chihuahua, to Hanos, to various other places. And we know that Refugio was raised, obviously, in the very top social strata of El Paso del Norte, that she uh, was raised in luxury and that she was a real catch for whoever could catch her. And her hand was being vied for between a fellow by the name of Martin Amador and somebody who eventually becomes the governor of Chihuahua. And I believe the last name might be Tarazas. Okay. Uh, haven't haven't got that thoroughly checked out, but I believe that's the case that she was she was being courted by uh, Luis Terrazas, rather well known name in northern Mexico. Um, you could say Papa might have made a mistake, and the suitor he picked, I don't know. Uh, anyway. That is Refugio's background. Let me tell you a little bit about Gregorio's background. Oh, and Refugio was educated, has one of the most beautiful handwritings you ever want to see. Uh, obviously well-schooled by the sisters, no question about it. Beautiful handwriting, good grammar, as her father has beautiful handwriting and good grammar. Okay? So she's educated, wealthy, and so on. Gregoria, on the other hand, has a different background. Her background is in the presidios of the northern frontier of New Spain. Her paternal grandfather was a soldier at, and I can never say this right, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to murder it, okay? Guajuquilla, uh, the Presidio of Guajuquilla, which is south of um, Ciudad uh, Chihuahua. Okay? And he has a wife, and we know that he was a mestizo. And his wife dies, and somehow he ends up at the Presidio at uh, San Elizario. Texas. And uh, he decides to take another wife, and he takes a wife by the name of Manuela Garcia de Noriega. 
who was the distant cousin of Francis Ghost. Okay? And this is an important thing, that they have some relation. Um, her husband, and, and she grows up in El Paso. She's born around 1800 in El Paso. She grows up there, and she marries in this is the marriage that certainly first marriage that we know about. She marries a musician who had been born at the Presidio of San Buenaventura. And his name was Francisco Amador. And he was a musician. They have a number of children in the they were married in eighteen thirty two. They have a number of children, and uh, Gregoria is, I think, probably a very happy lady, uh, but he dies. And he dies somewhere between 1841 and 1844. And we know that because in 1844 she marries Marcia, Marcel Vargas from Islata. Texas. And what can I say? He was not around very long. But she moved her children all over to, to Isleta because um, Martin talks about having lived in Isleta as a, as a child. And next thing you know, guess who dies? Okay. Husband number two. She married in 1849 a fellow by the name of Francisco Teos, who apparently is a land uh, has a land, uh, a portion of the Doña Ana grant assigned to him, you know, his 40 acres here in the valley. And so she trots the whole group up here. And at first they live in, as far as we can tell, they live in Doña Ana. They live with Jose Maria Costales, who was one of the founders of the Doña Ana colony. And <laughs> they, uh, they're in the household, in one sentence, in one census. But they very <coughs> shortly, probably as she is being courted by Francisco Teas, um, they get a solar in Las Cruces. Well, she doesn't get the solar. Her daughter gets the solar, her oldest daughter. By the way, her next oldest daughter marries Irineo Cristales uh, of Doña Ana. No, sorry, that was close to Her oldest daughter, Candelaria, and we question that that is a biological daughter, could be a godchild, could be an orphan, we don't know, but Candelaria was not, shall we say, as close to her mother in a way as the other children, and she was 10 years old when they'd only been married nine years, so you don't know. But there's something, and she appears in the records in many different disguises. She sometimes is Candelaria Rodella, she's sometimes Candelaria Amador, she's sometimes Candelaria Islas. Uh, you never know that Candelaria. Uh, I think she ends up with three hubbies too, but I don't think it was a case of them dying necessarily. Uh, anyway, Mama comes up, she brings her kids up, and her oldest son, uh, Martin, he's the oldest one that lives. There are other children who have died. But her oldest son very early goes to work. We know that. They were poor. And we know that he works first with his brother-in-law, Irineo Costales. And then, next thing we know, he's working at Fort Fillmore for the soldiers. And it is at Fort Fillmore that Martin learns to read and write because his mother is illiterate and all of the places that you find that she was to sign her name, her marriage record in Juarez in 1832, 
uh, papers here in the valley show all these signs with an X. Okay? And <coughs> she was, I'm sure, not literate. Um, that is her background. Her background is one of strength of character, obviously. And in that day and age, outliving three husbands is really quite something. It's usually the husbands outlive three wives. Uh, but in her case, ah, uh -uh, she outlived three husbands. Francisco Teos dies in the 1860s here in, in Las Cruces. So they have a lot in common. And the major thing they have in common, of course, is Martin Amador. Martin, after he learns to read and write and help the soldiers, I think he tended livestock at Port Fillmore, he somehow becomes um, a friend of, or, well, he was certainly a worker for, Hugh Stevenson. And Hugh Stevenson's son, Horace. Horace Stevenson. And Horace and, and Martine are about the same age. And pretty soon you find out that Martine is the paymaster for the Stevenson Mind and Smelter here in the valley. And at this point, he's probably 20 years old. He's very young. But he's an up-and-comer. There's no question about it. He is making his way, and he obviously, to a large degree, is, is um, getting involved in the Stevenson's uh, business situation. The Stevenson's were freighting ore out of the mines in the Oregon Mountains. They were, they were bringing the ore down, smelting it, and then freighting it uh, south and apparently um, uh, north. Uh, I don't know that they were taking ore all the way to St. Louis, but they certainly were trading both north and south out of this valley. And Hugh Stevenson as, uh, let me just put him in context, the Bosico Grant. Hugh Stevenson married the woman, okay, who had the, it was involved with the, the, the uh, Grant. Hugh Stevenson is from Kentucky, but he comes in 1823. So he's not exactly a newcomer by the 1840s, 1850s. And fits very well and is one of the most prominent businessmen in El Paso del Norte, as is Refugio's father, Juan Ruiz. Um, very shortly, we know that by 18, probably the late 1850s, Martin is involved in freighting. He's freighting out of out of the valley. Um, and we know, I don't know that he had any land. Mama had some land. Teos had some land. His sister had some land. And he apparently lives with Mama. His younger brother moves next door. The sister lives up the block. And you know that block that's got the county courthouse on it, the old county courthouse? That's Amador territory. They, all along Main Street, had their house, and behind it was more Amador, and also behind, on the Amador street side, was where the horses were kept, where the wagons were kept, and so on, for Martin's trading uh, ventures. And so Martin, or <coughs> Whatever reason, uh, decides, I think, to marry Refugio. And he competes with, Lu I, I think it's Luis Trossus. Okay? And for whatever reason, the Ruizes pick Martin over Luis Trossus. Okay? Luis Trossus becomes the governor of of Chihuahua and one of the largest landowners in Mexico, um, certainly one of the most wealthy people in Mexico. Um, but they pick, they pick Martin. He was an up-and-comer. And, ah, remember, Refugio's mother is somehow related to 
his mother. So he would have been socially acceptable because he's marrying literally into the top rung of, of El Paso society. Uh, and guess what, one? What they have a negotiation. It goes on for heaven only knows how long, but until 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we know that. And they have a negotiation, and finally, he is given 2,000 pesos to marry Rufio. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, the priest marries them in El Paso, Bolnoza. Uh, she was 12, 13 years old. And she was one of two twins that the Ruiz family had. Her sister dies very shortly after she's married. Um, she dies by, I think she dies in, in 65. And they were married in 1861. Uh, 2,000 pesos. You know how much money 2,000 pesos was in 1861. Think of that for a minute. What's going on up here? Civil War, right? And here is Martin sitting in El Paso del Norte with 2,000 pesos. And a father-in-law, who is a very prominent merchant and has a very good trading business. And Martin, it's unclear if he comes up here in 61, but my assumption is with Spanish family, he would have brought Refugio up here because she would have come up to be with her husband's family. And we know she was here uh, very shortly thereafter. We know her first two children were born in Juarez. That you understand. But I think she was living up here. And where was she living? Ah, yes, the corner of Amador and Main Street, the southwest corner of Amador and Main Street. And uh, she was living with Gregoria, who is illiterate, right? It's got to be a really strong lady. And you've got Rosuccio, very much brought up in wealth and luxury and highly educated. Uh, it must have been an interesting household, is all I can say. Uh, and certainly you've got sister down the street that eh, you don't know exactly what she's been up to. Uh, and the brother next door. Okay? And you found in the archives the thing on the Adair house that was done in uh, 56, 1956. And in that and I'm sorry for those of you that are just enthralled with oral history. In that, it says that Doña Gregoria ran a grocery store at that place, and that's how Martin got his start. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Sure. Everybody forgets the 2,000 pesos. The, the, you know, the Garcia de Noriega connection, etc. It's got to be this old lady who cannot read and write, running a grocery store, and her son decides, well, that's what I'm going to be. Well, that doesn't work in Spanish families. I'm sorry that, you know, he wasn't just dying to take over his mother's store. Uh, that is a piece of mythology that gets built, I am sure, by Anglos in the 50s, probably 40s, 50s, because there was a grocery store there. It was the Adair's grocery store, no question about that. And the Adair's were descendants of Gregoria and Don Martin, so must have been that's how he got his good start. Well, if you start digging deep enough, it's the 2,000 pesos. So Lufukio, Rufukio is the basis of Don Martini's wealth. Pure and simple. No question about it. And you know what Don Martini does? 
he decides to go into business with his father-in-law. And he starts trading with his father-in-law well, during the Civil War, right? And what happens in Mexico? Benito Juarez is run out, the liberal government is run out of central Mexico, they end up in the north. Central Mexico becomes a trench. You know, we have a trench, um, you know, what do you call it, king in Mexico? Uh, what do they call it? Anyway, okay. And Benito Juarez is hanging out, where is he hanging out? Juarez. Who's he hanging out with? I thought he'd be a long relief among other people. Uh, and there is no question that one Ruiz and Martin Amador were freighting munitions and guns to the Nutorias. Uh, it's all done in code. I can't show you a letter that says that, but I sure as hell can show you letters that say things like, really enjoyed your hospitality, thank you so much, and send the goods on. Sincerely, Benito Juarez. Uh, and then other letters that talk about the goods and moving the goods, and the goods need to be moved, and watch out for the Apaches, and, and so on, okay? And you have to remember that the minute our civil war is over in 65, the United States government begins to give Juarez guns. Because they don't want the French in Mexico. We didn't want them there. We wanted Juarez back in power. And so Martin Amador very quietly helps the Benito Juarez cause, the liberal cause in Mexico. And if you don't think he made a little bit of money doing that, I'm sorry. So by the, 18, the end of the 1860s, he's a very wealthy man. And he's now freighting from St. Louis to Chihuahua. Okay? And if you look at your pictures, you will see the first picture is of Martin Amador, 18... 69, it was taken in St. Louis. Take a look at him. Take a real good look at him. He's a Spanish. He's not mestizo. He's as Spanish as you can get. According to his descendants, red hair and green eyes. Okay? The next is Don Martin. As a more mature man, he's in his 40s here in the 1870s, and down here is Ruth Rukio, and she is in her late 20s at the same time that these, this other picture was done. If these pictures look familiar, you will find them hanging in the lobby of the Citizens Bank in Loretta Center. Okay? Now, a little bit of proof so that you know I'm not making up the Stevenson connection. This picture is of Refugio Ruiz de Amador, probably about, I would say, 1800. They've got bustles, so it's certainly pretty early on. Do you know who that everybody is? Simona Dutton de Stevenson. It's Horace's wife. And Horace's wife and Horace become godparents to the to the uh, Amador children, to some of the Amador children, and they are the couple that stands up with the oldest Amador daughter when she marries Jesus Garcia. Okay, um, there's no question that there is a close relationship between the Stevensons and the Amadors. Do you know any of this? Isn't this fascinating? She's just sitting there like... It's just absolutely incredible. And, and so what we have then is, you know, Mama running the store, number one, is an illiterate... Well, she put it certainly. But his wealth 
Well, his wealth is south of the border. No question about it. Okay? And Refugio comes up to Las Cruces, and who is she in Las Cruces? Now, there's the question. What happens to this family in Las Cruces? Well, first of all, Gregorio always lives in that house on the corner of Maine and Amador, southwest corner. And yes, there is a mercantile there. Martin puts in a mercantile that he brings stuff in and so on. And I am sure that Mama might have helped a little bit. Do you think Rosicchio helped? With her background, I don't think she was clerking in his store. Okay? Uh, what we know about her, and and really, it is it is solidified in her obituary. Her obituary is wonderful, uh, and in her obituary it says she ran the affairs of the household. She was so thrifty. She was, could be an example. Uh, for other mothers. And at the same time, she was liberal and generous, with a sweet and amicable disposition. In spite of being the treasurer for her husband, she never dressed in luxury, but wore simple and loving costumes, typical of a tourist family. Okay? Uh, I'm sure the kids wrote it, by the way. They usually, family did write the obituaries even then. Uh, so we have this wonderful letter that Refugio writes, May 1896. My beloved daughters, I will leave with Poncho, that's her uh, son Frank, if we cannot get the girl out. I know that Amelia, according to the doctor's opinion, cannot be taken outside while it is windy because she will be exposed to pneumonia and you all think it is an excuse, well, it is not very pleasant to be in a stranger's house. I had great joy to see my beloved children and to know that you, how you are. Frank tells me that your father told him that he had to collect the rents. Got that? One of the tenants is late and you should collect two months' rent. You go and charge him. The receipts are on Frank's desk or you can make him one. Go before your father goes. Got that? Go before your father goes. Today, go and take care of this business and tell your father that you already sent me the money. Always write down the day and the month this is due. The checks are beautiful. And then she goes on. Okay? This lady was running his business in the background. She was keeping the money. And she was, was how should I say, making sure that Don Martin did not get in any trouble with his finances. Uh, her father writes her, and this is before her father died, he died in the 18, late 1860s. Her father writes her, he was nothing before you married him. Um, she obviously um, was uh, very much involved in, in the Amador um, uh, wealth and in developing the Amador wealth. Um, Gregoria ends her life in Las Cruces in 1882. She was 70, 80 years of age. Rafikia dies in 1907. She was only 59 years old. But then she had had either 14 or 15 children. Uh, we can find four, the records of 14. We can't find records of the 15. And of those children, half, only half survived. In fact, only seven reach adulthood and, and uh, go on living lives. Um, she had a great deal of tragedy in her life. There's no question about it. But she was a very smart lady. She was probably not as smart as her husband, by the way, in the sense of business. He was an extremely, extremely intelligent businessman. Um, and you can see, you know that 
you know this from in 1881, the railroad comes to Las Cruces. How did it get to Las Cruces? Well, all of the records tell you that there were these three guys, these Anglos, Ryerson, Kunas, and three else, who set up the Las Cruces Town Company. And the Las Cruces Town Company offered to the railroad land for a depot and uh, right-of-way. Okay? And that's why it doesn't go to Mesilla, because Mesilla doesn't want to give them any land. So the railroad comes here. If you look at the original papers for the Las Cruces Town Company, everybody seems to forget the other two people that were involved in setting it up. One guy's name was Hustendal Amijo, and the other guy's name was Martin Amador. And Hustendal Amijo sells to the, the Las Cruces Town Company 60 acres, and Martin Amador sells 40 acres to the company. And guess where the railroad and the depot ran? Okay? Now, Martin Amador already in 1876, 1877, is looking at how do we get freight to go faster and faster. We don't have the railroad. But I'm going to start running freight wagons up to wherever the railhead is and coming back and see how fast I can do it. He's also thinking about, hmm, the railroad comes, going to need a hotel. Right? In 1872, now watch out for this, those of you that know Las Cruces history. It's 1872 when Martin Amador buys the land that the hotel is on. 1872. Okay? Before that, it was owned by one of those invisible Indians. Uh, anyway, he builds a rooming house over there. He built it for his stage drivers, his freighters. And, uh, you know, it was a sweet little deal. Got it set up really good. By the time the railroad comes in, the hotel actually opens as a fancy hotel in uh, about 1887. Before that, you know, the, the county seat uh, moved from Mesilla to Las Cruces. And Gee whiz, they didn't have anywhere to, to move to begin with. So Amador let them use the rooming house and fixed up rather nice as a, as a courtroom and had a jail and all kinds of good stuff in it. And the county seat was there for a couple of years on Amador Street. So what you've got then is a guy who's quite brilliant. He's, he's looking at what's happening and he's thinking in the future. In 1902, the U.S. Senate sent through a fact-finding committee and asked prominent people in New Mexico about statehood. When should they get statehood and so on. And Don Martin gives testimony to that committee and he says, think about this, 1902, and he says, we should not have statehood for 10 years. There's, there's your centennial. Uh, and he says, we shouldn't have it because we need to learn and we need to learn English. We need more English. When he died very early in 1903, Refugio believed that he had been hounded to death <coughs> by the people who thought he was trying to block statehood. Okay? But, you know, it's really funny. It was right on. Can't, can't, can't beat that. So these two women in the background are women of consequence. Refugio especially a woman of consequence. But if you hadn't had Gregoria outliving all of her husbands, that, that would be interesting. Um, and let me just read you then the, the last part of the obituary um, of Rufikio. 
She was a renowned woman with great talent, generosity, and benevolence. She was very noble, not only by birth, but in her conduct and lifestyle. Of special note was the courtesy and refinement with which she treated her family and friends, and she had winning manners which held affection of all of her friends. This is not a woman who had a boarding house that was a bordello. This is a very, very prominent, very devout Catholic woman. And the other myth that goes around about the Amadors, there are two. One, that Mama got Martini started, and number two, that the Amador Hotel was a Bortello, is just crap. And if you'll turn over on the back side of your page, this is why I don't like oral history. I'm sorry. It is so usually only partially correct. And it's always false. And you get these mythology, these stories going around about people. Here is the Amador Hotel when Refugio was alive. Now it's hard to see, but there the family is sitting in the lobby of the hotel. Okay? Here is the hotel after she died. Her daughter marries Frank Campbell and they begin to doll up the hotel big time. If you will notice, in the picture of the family, there isn't even any furniture in the hall. Okay? And there wouldn't have been, because they used this as a gathering place for the community. And they had dances here, all kinds of things. You wouldn't want it cluttered up with a bunch of furniture. You couldn't have danced, let me tell you, in this hotel. This one you put in, okay? This is the Amadola Hotel. And these are pictures of the ho a house that was built across the street from the hotel at the corner of Water and Amador on the south, north, the northwest corner. This is Refugio with Clotilda uh, in 1880 when Clotilda was born. This picture is one of my favorites. This is Maria and Corina, so it would have been taken about 1885. Look at the clothes on those kids, people. This is not a poor family, okay? And then, of course, we have the family portrait of all of the Amadores when, when Don Martino was still alive. He's obviously in the 60s at this point. And then you have the three generations of Amador women, the picture I love which is Refugio, Emilia, and Maria Paulina. Okay. And I probably talked your ear off. Does anyone have any questions? Thank you for being here. It's wonderful to see your face. I'm just so thrilled because I've lived, what, 20 years with the end of my research and these questions and and all I've been able to do is jump up in the air when he brought up the bordello thing when we had Frank Campbell there I mean not um, Mark, yeah Marty, Marty. <laughs> Marty there and he almost went into tears I happened to be at the county commission but I just and so I stood up and I and I made a good statement and then made sure the mayor got my article it was only as far as I could go. But this is just, I am, I am so glad for the explanation of the dynamic here that I just, just, I mean, and I didn't, didn't even know, but I didn't see what through the, those letters and stuff. Right. There's so much. That's a fascinating thing. It's, it should be the first family of lost yeah. curses. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm really tired of, is it Billy the Kid? Or was it Pat Garrett? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember which one as being the first family. You know, yeah. this is a fascinating family, but it's not the only one. The Armijo family, yeah. uh, Armijo's family, absolutely fascinating. Two, how he and Martine give the land to get the railroad yeah. to find out. And nobody, 
everybody thinks it's three Anglos who did it. I'm sorry, you know, the Anglos didn't have the land with the Hispanics who had the land. One question I have is um, the household they lived in, I mean, uh, when they first came, Costales, is it Costales, Costales, actually? Is there any hidden Indian in, in that family? I know. That we never checked them out. I'll, I'll go back to our, our records and find out. I ran across that with the doubling of the name mm -hmm. uh, in some stuff about Fort Selden and that land, and I went, Ooh, because I, I didn't know why she was in that household. And, uh, no, she was there because the host of other Mary, Marina. There's no question about it. And then you find him lost cruises with her and the household of Josefa and Irina. Now, what happens to Josefa, I don't know, but she dies because Irina eventually marries someone else. Um, 1870 And how far had you gone with the lives of the Martin and Rufus' children. Do you um, know what happened when Albuquerque was <laughs> <laughs> What happened with what? <laughs> the, the daughter who married the man who was a sheriff for a while? Right. Was that was they they Garcia? Garcia? Yeah. What happened there? Why did the child... Why was the child raised by her grandparents? Yeah, I mean... Um, it's very unclear. Uh, except they didn't want her up there, that was for sure. And I don't know, Amelia was not well up there and she had had in trouble. Uh, and both the boys died up there. And I'm wondering, they had two older sons and then Maria Paulina. And it seems that, you know, she's sent down here because she's been safe. But I don't, beyond that, no, I haven't really. One of the things that I did, because I knew about Marty, and so on, is I said, okay, I stopped in 1910. I don't go past 1910. We did, you know, we have here at the museum a huge collection from the Andrew family, which is how I got involved in this at all. And I decided I didn't want to offend anybody who is still alive. And so I stopped in 1910. Looking at the at the children as they were young, some of them unmarried by night. Well, I guess they were all married by nineteen ten. But that was about it. You know, they just newly married then. You know, and I didn't go into the absolute tragedy of Clotilde oh. what happens to her. I mean, that's that's tragic. The tragedy of Maria and especially what happens to them in the revolution. Um, and you know, I just stopped at that point and thought. Okay, to to keep everybody happy, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop and look again. But we have materials very definitely on what happens to them. There's a huge family fight, and they don't speak to each other anymore. And Clotilde is considered to be the witch of the family, and the kids from Paulina's group are told not to have anything to do with her. And uh, it, it gets and it gets very messy. Um, All those babies she loved, and in that collection, there's a little books with You know, it just left me. You can see why I do. You know, when I was defending my project, and they asked me, I won't tell you who I'm imitating, they asked me, and why have you taken such a nice home here? And I said, because this is only a project dealing with a limited amount, and it's 25 pages. This family deserves, and the, the poignancy that these questions that I'm just raising here, that what I'm bringing up, the poignancy of the answers and the depth that the, the answers have in their effect on all people, I'm not being um, lily-livered. Huh. This is the reality how a story, yeah. I think, uh, should, should approach so you, 
you have more fun, and I'm like, oh, thank you so much. I'm sorry if I kind of, <laughs> but it's been 20, 24 years coming, and this is just wonderful to have some more. Well, I, you know, we've got a ways to go yet. Yeah. Uh, I am going to do a book on the and I'm. I'm not going to do we'll it. have a uh, <laughs> Okay. I'm not going to do it on the amateur women. I'm going to do it on Don Martin because I think I think he deserves it. Yeah. And the women are going to figure obviously very prominently in it. Well, now they um, we don't leave women out of history. Hopefully. Well, hopefully, yes. And uh, you know, but that's that's yeah. my intent is to do it, and also to make sure that this collection and this museum is preserved. I'm now, what we've got to preserve. Is it still just in boxes, just uh, arranged chronologically? Yeah. Oh, but, or? Oh, when I got here, I found all of this stuff. Oh, obviously old stuff. I didn't know what the hell I was looking at. I mean, you know, what, how many of you know what a, a wagon hoop looks like? You know. I found all this old wood out in one of the storage bays, and I thought, well, it's got to be something, so I better save it, right? The Amador wagon hoops from the Amador Creek wagon. Wow. Okay? And as we began to search and search and search the archives and search the records and so on, most of the Amador collection was not accession at the museum. We have the stuff, but it wasn't accession. And so one of my real things has been for the last 10 years, nine years, is to really get that all accession, get it identified. And one of the ways we've identified it, and this is terrible, it's true though, all of the stuff that the, that the um, museum and archives got was out of the basement of the house. And it had a certain dirt on it. And the way we identify part of the, the Amador collection is like, oh yeah, that's Amador dirt. I'd recognize it any day. Okay? We have, and the family since then has given us more, we have between six, seven hundred items from the family here in the museum. This is not the papers. Where they got 140 linear feet of papers over there in the archives from the family. This is extremely important family, and it tells you about the history of this area, both here in Juarez, and, you know, we've got to save that collection, no matter what happens. <coughs> do you think the centennial will help you do that? I think the book is going to help. Want to help? I, I, I know I people who live in, I know people who perfume and died that they went over and got boxes. Yeah. You know, and uh, I didn't do this work until the early days. Huh. And um, so she died what? Uh, and uh, and who am I? You know, and, I mean I'm a new in the valley and uh, Certainly, it didn't occur to me to try and go after somebody. Now I would, and we have a, I have a friend in, uh, she was going to come tonight, who, you know, knew some of them. Crochet, perhaps, for her baby. Yeah. And uh, oh, all kinds of interesting The women did wonderful fancy work, by yeah. the way. We have all kinds of examples of that. Yeah. And uh, so the, thing the thing that's killing me is that the museum was given the plow. The plow. Oh. And we don't have I have no idea. Well, we have a newspaper article that says we were given the wagon boots, corn seed, and the plow. And you've never seen it here? No, the plow. I mean, and let me tell you, I have gone, I talked to Brad Blake. Have you ever seen it? I've talked to Pat Miles. Have you ever seen it? I've talked to Tony Lombard. Have you ever seen it? Because these are people who were involved with the museum way before I was. And none of us have seen it. I've talked to the people over in the ag school going, you know, it's a really unusual plow. 
And, you know, he, I mean, he, has a, he got a patent on it. He was offered $70,000 by uh, somebody to, you know, do it. And it was two years later that John Deere comes out with the same thing. Uh, different, of course, different patent, but same thing. Uh, and I don't know what, I don't know what it kills me every time I think about it. So I'm damned if I'm going to let the wagon hoops and the corn seeder go. I got those. And I got all the credit, excuse me, credit toys from the basement that all broken. He didn't miss a lot. Uh, and, and other various things. So, anyway, that's one of the things that I would really very much like to do. Because it saves your work and my work. I made this statement to the commission. So Marty would hear it too, and so they would hear it. This is extremely important, and it's important because of where we are looking at land use and changes and population growth. Because the dynamics, there, there's a lot to learn by looking at that history and seeing where those are coming from many places. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what, what we see, and, and I said, this is really, this is a critical thing. This isn't just a nice walk into Victorian house. You know, it has a dynamic. And I am so pleased. Thank you. I'm, I don't know if I like not having chocolate for a long time. And <laughs> it means a lot to you to get out and add it. But, but I'm really sorry that in a way my life, but I, it, I'm just really excited to know. Well, hey, a lot of people would make hay out of my PhD. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Isn't it amazing how much better the real history is than Billy McKinn? Oh, yeah. Really good. Thank you very much. Um, this is the kind of uh, lecture series I'm trying to set up. I'm trying to do anthropologists. The next uh, regional authors. They'll be part of the series also. The next lecture will be with Dr. Um, Marsha Weisnager. She's faculty and she does historic preservation. She will be speaking the 17th, the week of homecoming, and she'll be on the, the textbook floor of the bookstore because it's going to be big up there. We're expecting 50 to 75 people for that one uh, because some of the classes will be required to attend. And she'll be talking about preserving the trust architecture on campus. Dr. Terry Reynolds' podcast is brought to you by New Mexico State University Bookstore and the Centennial Speaker Series. Any unauthorized broadcast or distribution for anything other than educational purposes will be considered copyright infringement. The 